Game Cool Books, Episode 48, Counting the Stones in the Wall. Chapter 11, The Belvedere, opens with dreams for Will this time. Unlike Lyra's dreams at the opening of Chapter 3, with the clear image of the vacuum flask without its head, his dreams are impressionistic, filled with anxiety and sweetness in equal measure, but there's a clear physiological correlate and likely cause for these dreams, whatever their actual content, in his wound and the loss of blood. It leaves his bed crimson, leaves himself covered in blood, in a way that hints at the adolescent rite of passage for girls, too. The dust-filled sunlight and silence of the villa set up suspense. They just hint at something coming through to break that silence. And taking dust in its metaphorical meaning, this kind of conscious attention is one the coming intruders that won't bring with them. It's far from the sort of calm awareness Lyra has used to read the alethiometer or what Will has used with the knife. They stayed in servants' rooms under the attic. And that makes sense for Will, and perhaps for all of Lyra's lording it over the other kids back in Oxford, it seems that she isn't actually comfortable with the sort of luxury that's afforded by the villa. As Will puts it, this isn't a baked beans kind of house. And we see another side of her character here in Lyra's concern for Will. Her clumsy domesticity, offering him breakfast and water to wash with, and being clear that she wants him to tell her which to do first. She'll do whichever he wants. And when he opts for the hot water and strips to his underpants right there, too faint and dizzy to feel embarrassed, she goes out like she did when Roger had his last bath at Lord Asriel's. This is just one more thing that she is able to do for him. Though how she might feel about it, besides the vicarious embarrassment she feels, we aren't told. His hand remains the body part that both their attention is fixed on. Bandaged, swollen, red, but they don't speak about whatever they're worried about with it, whether it might be infected or not. Will suggests asking the alethiometer. Lyra emphasizes, as if her ministrations so far weren't clear enough, that she'll only do what he asks her to from now on. Almost right away, she redirects the conversation, supplying some information she hadn't had a chance yet to share about just how much danger they're in now, about what she saw through the window of the tower, the window that goes down to the alley in the square, not through into Will's world, where she saw the last moments of Tulio. And she puts it together with what she'd heard Paolo, his little brother, say when they met before Angelica cut him off. So Lyra reminds Will and reminds us too, effectively saving us the effort of flipping back through the pages and rereading. Or maybe she's just modeling what that sort of attentive and reflective reading 
and rereading looks like. She extrapolates further, perhaps, than most young readers would on their own, that having the knife would mean they could do anything. They could grow up without being afraid. Now, contrary to the vagueness of his dream, it's Will this time who recurs to the particular concrete details of Tullio's demise, demanding what was it like. And Lyra tells him about his counting stones in the wall. This is a picture, I think, of what it looks like to get an idea about something, having reflected on it, being able to focus in on the key details, and then extrapolating from that, the way Lyra just showed us how to do, and sharing that idea. Will thinks that maybe the specters are from his world after all. Maybe the first window that was cut with the subtle knife went through into his world. Maybe the specters are called something else. The reasons for his thinking so aren't immediately apparent. They're keyed to memories that he will share later on in a couple of chapters. But the invitation to the reader is clear to be thinking about what specters might be, what they might be called in our world. Just in the same way as we've probably been wondering from the first page of the first book what having a demon might mean or what it might be like. To Lyra's apologies, she says she should have told him about all this earlier, only they were busy with so many other things, Will again places the focus squarely on the particulars that matter most. That Tullio was torturing the old man, that he'd stolen the knife, that they'd have to fight him to get it back from him. And if they hadn't, he'd have killed them. So the two of them go on interpreting their story, talking through its implications, much in the way that readers discussing it would do. Lyra feels bad, sympathizes that he was, after all, their brother, she puts herself in their place. If we were them, she said. Will insists that they had to get the alethiometer back, that they needed the knife in order to do it, although not in quite the way that they expected, and that they can't go back and change what happened. Though, doing something like that is indeed within the narrator's power to do. As we'll see in a few instances throughout the story, and we'll see much more so it's possible to change the story up until the point when that story is actually published. If we can imagine or perhaps gain some evidence about what the writing process was like for Philip Pullman, we might know better what points he went back and changed an initial idea about. He has spoken about how great an insight it was to him to realize what demons might mean in terms of his great theme of growing up. And after all this, <clears throat> Lyra once again compares Will, but favorably this time, to Yorick Bernison. that, like the bear, if he chooses not to fight, it's out of strategy, not cowardice. Although, of course, the other possibility there, I think, is that one might not fight out of mercifulness or pity, 
in her case, even sympathy. The talk turns to what comes next, what Sir Charles and Mrs. Coulter will do, that bodyguard that they spoke about, impervious to the specters, leads Will to speculate that what they eat is people's demons. That what Mrs. Coulter called the heart of everything, the difference between children's and grown-ups' demons, Will must have also heard something about this from Lyra. He says that she told him once that grown-ups' demons don't change shape. That great insight that Pullman had as he was writing and rewriting his initial drafts. Would that have been Lyra telling him that during their walk back to the hornbeam trees from the, the cinema when she recounted all her adventures because he was such a good listener? Or is it possible that Will is conflating something he overheard her mother saying with the little that Lyra has told him about demons in the course of the story as we have it written out for us. She wouldn't be afraid anyway, Lyra concludes about her mother. Clever, ruthless, cruel, Mrs. Coulter would boss the specters, just like she does people. But scared as she is, Lyra takes comfort in having the alethiometer back for guidance again. So at last, she begins to ask the alethiometer. She's going to ask first about Will's father, knowing that's what she should have done in the first place. And she goes about explaining the symbols that she intends to use, but no, he interrupts her. and He says he wants her to check on his mother first. In a striking contrast to the hostility there was between them when she was last reading the alethiometer, in the square in Will's Oxford. This time, there's the stirrings of the sort of tenderness that he's coming to feel towards her in the depiction of her reading. It's a striking contrast to the hostility there was between them when she was last reading the Alethiometer in the square in Will's Oxford. This time, there's stirrings of tenderness Will's coming to feel towards her in the depiction we get. Lyra nodded and turned the hands before laying the alethiometer in her lap and tucking her hair behind her ears to look down and concentrate. Will watched the light needle swing purposefully around the dial, darting and stopping and darting on as swiftly as a swallow feeding, and he watched Lyra's eyes, so blue and fierce and full of clear understanding. The image of the swallow feeding mirrors exactly pans flying through the first window Will cut with the knife. It underlines the connection that Pan is partly responsible for establishing between the two of them by his licking Will's hand just prior in that scene in the tower. On learning that his mother is safe, protected by the exceptional kindness of the piano teacher that Lyra reads as her friend, Will measures how worried he's been by the pain of the wound that sharpens with some of that tension being released. Before the alethiometer can divulge anything further, though, the main action of this chapter is launched with a shout from outside. Linked formed pantalimon, his eyes fierce as Lyra's were just described. 
states what we know is inevitable. It's the children. Forty or fifty, led by the boy in the striped t-shirt whom Will had pulled back from stoning the cat at the base of the tower, and Angelica there urging him on. These yelling, bloodthirsty sorts of kids. Will has seen this before, but never so many, and they don't wave guns around back in his town. This, I guess, would have been published just around the time that the school shootings were becoming routine in the United States, though to this day they're rare in other parts of the world. And what's carried by Angelica's voice is a reverse of Lyra's imaginative sympathy. Instead, there's the demand for murderous vengeance, ironically based on just the sort of equivalence that Lyra intuited between them. You killed him, and we'll kill you, she says. This echoes the eye-for-an-eye sort of thing we get, but also the imagery of a female instigator. Uh, it makes Angelica a kind of precocious Madame Defarge. And the boy in the striped T-shirt might well be a variation on the kid with the pistols in Delacroix's revolutionary painting, Liberty Leading the People. At this point, Lyra seizes on the fastest possible escape. Why can't they just cut a window? While Will just as sensibly replies that it's impossible and actually gives two reasons. They'd be back in Sir Charles's house or right near it, and he can't cut through anywhere without looking through carefully first. He makes a, perhaps a last snide reference to Lyra's run-in with the traffic circle drivers and says that they might appear in the main street in front of a bus. But we curious readers have to detain matters a moment here. Suppose he did cut a window in a busy road and a bus or some other moderately large vehicle just wider than the width of the window, anyhow. Suppose it did approach the window head-on. Would only part of the vehicle go through the window, and the rest, neatly shorn away, continue down the road with a window-shaped hole in the middle of it? Would the truck rebound against the edge of the window, or would it be sucked into that abyss from which we learn later the specters come? Or what? What would happen? So much might be our response to Will's second objection. As to his first, that they'd be back right by Sir Charles's mansion, doesn't that assume, as they have been assuming all along, in fact, that the knife can only be used to cut between two worlds after all, Chigatsi and Will's own, ours? This is a topic they haven't seemed to consider yet too much, and they won't for quite some time. Why is it that this knife only seems to cut back and forth between the two worlds. To be fair, they've got a lot going on, as Lyra has said. And as Will says, when Lyra catches some of Angelica's bloodlust, stop talking and come on. So we'll move along, but there is just one further speculation I have to throw out. Uh, we can wait a little bit for that, though. It's uh, This is the point where they gather their stuff which is always minimal, it seems. 
They escape through the kitchen garden. Another garden image here. They stumble up the slope of tussocky grass. They come to a knoll with a circular temple-like building. Having been spotted by a kid from the upstairs window, apparently no searching through all the rooms of the house for these intruders, Will, dizzy from his wound, already without the strength to reach the cover of the trees they're heading for, they head over to the temple place instead. We see Pan darting ahead, tugging at Lyra, just as she helps Will along, and Will can almost see the bond between them, meaning between Lyra and Pan, but I think there's something similar that's beginning to be visible between Will and Lyra. The word Belvedere literally means beautiful to see, a place with a lovely view. This one has uh, goddesses in niches, a uh, spiral staircase in the center. Uh, there's no key to lock the door, so they clamber up the staircase and onto the floorboards of an upper level that was really a viewing place where people could come to take the air and look out over the city, for there were no windows or walls, simply a series of open arches all the way around supporting the roof. In each archway, a windowsill at waist height was broad enough to lean on, and below them the pan-tiled roof ran down in a gentle slope all around to the gutter. So we have a combat ground sketched out for us again. Again, the top of a tower, lower one this time. And these sort of open-air windows, I find pretty interesting, these open arches. Um, here's where I wonder why Will doesn't cut a window precisely the size of the door. Even if you can't lock it, you could effectively prevent anyone from coming through, at least in this world. When they pass through the door, they'd go into a different world. Um, or, still more, why not, once the kids do start climbing the walls to get around the doorway thing, um, or rather, what ends up happening, them cutting the stairwell out from under them, once the kids start climbing up the walls, what would happen if Will were to cut a circular, or rather a cylindrical window around the circumference of the upper floor? So a kind of uh, wall that he would create uh, in that space where the open arches are at the, at the time. Would that provide an effective barrier against any attack? At any rate, these wild possibilities, if they are possible, are not among the things that we can see from the Belvedere. In one direction lie the trees, tantalizingly close. In the other, you can see the carrion crows above that other tower. And Will's jolt of sickness as he realizes what drew them there leaves a bit of ambiguity about what in fact was. Was it the body of Tullio? Or was it the body of Giacomo Paradisi? Or was it both? The remainder of the action is rapid and terrifying for a while. The children racing... Their wild shots, their desperate attempt to cut through only to find themselves 50 feet in the air up a slope that is without a corresponding rise of the ground in Will's world, and indeed above a busy road. So, Will and Lyra resolve to hold the kids off, 
seemingly as doomed as Lee Scoresby's own last stand will prove to be. The kids' echoes in the tempo reinforce their emotions. It's a neat symbol of the echo chamber of fanatical belief, though this temple seems to be a pagan one rather than a Christian shrine. There's more sounds of gunshots, the stairs shaking. It leaves Lyra paralyzed, but Will slices through the steps as if they were paper. And that's a simile to watch for, because it'll appear again in the last moments of the authority. Under their own weight, the children fall with a crash. Somebody's accidentally shot with their own gun. And in a horrifying image, we see the tangle of bodies covered in dust and blood. Not like individuals, but a single mass, like a tide, surging. And that's a classical image for a mob. It's sprinkled with that unmistakably terrestrial dust. Though we can remember that dust in the church's interpretation is original sin. Now there are the sounds of the children scrabbling over the roof, swarming up like ants on their hands and knees. They're kept back for the moment by Pan's leopard form snarling at them. So they're not quite as insane yet as Tullio was on that other rooftop when the bear form Pan couldn't even get his attention. But these children are far from innocent. They're chanting, kill, 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 like something out of the Lord of the Flies. The Belvedere again turns to a weapon. The attackers flinging broken tiles from the roof, Will and Lyra swinging sword-length pieces of the rail from the cut staircase. Lyra's jab thrusts Angelica back. And then Will and his antagonists' eyes lock, they're passionate for battle. When just as suddenly as it erupted, the fight is broken up by the arrival of the great white snow goose. The children hear his calls even through their savagery. Perhaps it suggests the power of story winning out over mob mentality. Perhaps it suggests the power of mercy winning out over vengeance. Because Lyra, for one, recognizes the newcomer as Kaisa. And those children, not turned back by his whoops and wing beats, though he would never touch them, fall back and over the edge at the arrival of more black shapes familiar to Lyra. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of arrows all in the air at once that rain down like hammer blows, but don't hit a single child. Their aggression is replaced by fear, but also by wonder. They ask themselves, could these be ghosts? Could they be a new kind of specter? And as they feel fear and wonder and shame, their frightened, shame-faced children, they are a mob no longer. Will's wonder is no less, but as he's accompanied by Lyra and her grateful elation, shame does not seem to be a part of it for him.
Danger's not over yet, though. The witches can't come down and land, Kaisa says, because there's a hundred or more specters surrounding the building. Can't you see them, he asks the children. Un we know that children can't see them because we've been told that. Um, it might imply that Kaisa wonders whether Will and Lyra may have matured since they've last seen them. Of course, he doesn't know who Will is, so maybe he takes Will to be older than he actually is. He asks, who is this? And why are the specters avoiding Will? When he sees the knife, Will gets another idea that the specters are afraid of it, that he could even use it to kill them. Um, the witch whose demon this is, Serafina Pecola herself, arrives. Will is shocked by her astounding gracefulness and wonders at her age, that, that becomes a question for him now, too, because she looks youthful and yet far from young. He voices his idea that he wants to kill the nearest specter. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lyra's reaction to the witch's arrival is a, a, a hug, an embrace. She thought she'd never see her again. They get a new destination now, a cave, not far away in those woods. Apparently, the specters don't see the witches while they're in the air, and they don't seem to mind Will and Lyra as long as the knife isn't out and pointing at them. Um, what the witches think will take just a half hour ends up taking the children much longer than that, um, but... We can dispense with the last few paragraphs of the chapter quite briefly here. They don't make any comment about his wound yet, though that will become a concern of theirs. They're again called ragged, elegant figures. It's almost a uh, uh, epithet for these witches. The children are not carried this time then, um, but just like before at Bolvanger, uh, they do come just in time to rescue them. And that's something Lyra points out as she's chattering happily. Um, she doesn't seem to be thinking much about what they've just gone through. Uh, that, that elation of hers again, that surprise, has driven it out of her mind. That is certainly evidence of innocence. Um, when they do finally get to the cave... There's fire, a rabbit roasting, and they're ready to inspect Will's wound. Cat formed again. Pantalaimon looks closely too, while Will looks away. He doesn't like the look of his mutilated hand. They ask what weapon made it, though they must already suspect. Having seen power the knife has over the specters. Indeed, they look at it with wonder and suspicion. The writing here about the knife again 
uh, highlights the uncanniness of its edge that um, will take more than herbs in order to heal. It will take a spell. Until then, the children are to sleep. Well, at least Will is. He has a, a cup made of a horn material, which is suggests possibly the gate of horn in the Aeneid. Um, but possibly it's just a, a detail here. It's a hot potion with honey. Um, that makes me think of another classical uh, epic or, or anyhow a long poem um, on the nature of things where poetry is likened to the honey that sweetens the um, medicine, which is bitter. Uh, they cover him in leaves to keep him warm. Lyra's still gnawing her rabbit at this point. Um, and Serafina Pecola asks her again, who is this boy? What is this world? What is this knife? And so as he again sleeps, perhaps dreams, she, with a deep breath, begins to tell or retell her story. Now the cut that happens here to the next chapter is rather neat. Um, we'll look at it next time. Until then, thanks again for listening.